our, our big project at the time was M5V, and that's the, the, the project that sort of started the, the domino effect. Uh, one of our partners uh, was, was partners with Lifetime Development, and he brought them to the table, and, and it was a really, really hard pill to swallow. You know, M5V was, was the one project that unlocked the kings. You know, TIFF had been approved. We'd taken M5V through the OMB process. We lost once at the OMB. We appealed and went back again. We won. It became the most sort of catalytic win at the time. Um, completely reset the whole King West paradigm around development. And, you know, this was going to be the one that we were going to sort of ride into the sunset with. Right. Um, and we got around the table with Lifetime and they said, great, sort of will come in and by the way we're taking it all over you can have a seat at the table and it was crushing welcome to toronto under construction a podcast about everything toronto real estate welcome to toronto under construction a podcast about everything toronto real estate i'm your host ben myers co-host mr steve cameron how's it going steve i'm great I am fantastic. Well, we're going to try again for a podcast. Three guest cancellations. Yeah, it's crazy. A lost tape, which we're hoping will show up somewhere in the ether. Uh, so, you know. Shout out, Ed. Yeah. yeah. Beside himself in guilt and grief. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers to the lost tape. So I'm, I'm positive we're going to find it. Yeah. And even if it's in 2023 or 2024, like you said, man, that tape will be gold. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be a, a must-listen show. But uh, someone that never loses anything is our Sponsor. Show. Sponsor. <laughs> the award-winning Nizo Studios. The premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural visualization and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center. Physically or virtually, visit nizostudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling. The media Taking darling. The building's industry sales process by storm. So that's a thunder and lightning, uh, sound, thunder and lightning sound bit. Right? So. Yeah, great work. We, uh, you know, we, uh, we got a lot to cover today, so I think we should jump right into jump it. Right in. and, jump uh, right as, in. Jump right in. As I mentioned last time, uh, we've taken a bit of grief about too much chit-chat. Okay, we have a guest. Today's guest, ladies and gentlemen, is none other than Maziar Mortazavi of TAS Building Group. Maziar has led the evolution of TAS over the past 20 years with a focus of deeply aligning purpose and profit. He is deeply committed to unlocking equity across all community stakeholders and leading the evolution of capital as a tool to drive long-term resiliency. Maziar's commitment to leveraging capital to drive impact, coupled with the enhancing profitability through deep engagement, has positioned TAS as a leader in community-focused real estate development. His playbook is simple. Live out your passion in everything you do. Maziar is active and involved in the community as chair of the Bentway, trustee at the Art Gallery of Ontario, and across the YPO network. He has a Bachelor of Environmental Studies and Architecture from the University of Waterloo and a Master's of Architecture from the University of Waterloo. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Maz to the show. Great to be here, guys. <laughs> did I uh, did I get all the details in the 
in, in the intro or the bio there, or did I miss anything? You know what? It was it was a good good cover, and uh, I'm glad to meet me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like you? Us? Uh, I love me. Okay, cut us. If you can't if you can't love yourself, then then that, there's a bigger divide to cross. So yeah, you, we gotta, got to start with a little bit of self love. For right. sure. For sure. Nice. Well, thanks for joining us. It's yeah. nice to have you. Uh, All right. So so let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. You're you're an architecture grad. Your 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 family is in the uh, the the custom home building building industries? Did you always know that you wanted to be uh, in real estate? You know, it's interesting. So grew up in, in, a, in a family of architects. Mom and dad are both architects. They started our business back in 83. Um, and growing up, it was sort of, you know, the family office was in the basement and what was based was office by day became homework studio by night. Um, and we were sort of living in it, immersed in it and sort of became sort of, you know, all encompassing. Um, Growing up, I loved I loved art. I loved sort of everything everything art related. Uh, wanted to go and in, into painting and become a fine artist um, and a fine art sort of uh, major. And it was my folks who were like, you know, at least consider going into architecture. You get that balance between sort of art design, but sort of a professional sort of base as well. And so. Um, applied and went down sort of the architecture route. Um, I would have to say sort of it was also compelling because I found my parents' friends who were architects sort of part of the cool bunch who would sort of come over and hang out. So um, I guess sort of living it, breathing it, and it's sort of not uncommon it's sort of in our family, but many sort of families who, who've sort of grown up with, with sort of parents as architects end up pursuing that path. And um, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a culty thing, I guess, but uh, a pretty cool one. Yeah. And where was home? Where would you grow up? Were you, were you born and raised in Toronto? or uh, Families originally from Iran. I was born in Iran. Uh, we came to Canada in 1981. Okay. Um, and, you know, typical immigrant story. Parents came with nothing. This was sort of a, a fresh start for them. Um, I think between the ages of five and 10, we moved at least once a year and was sort of from apartment to apartment, rental place to rental place. And as mom and dad started the business, they would buy a house, tear it down, build it. They would buy another house. We'd move into it. We'd live in it for a while until someone came and said they want to buy it and they would tear that one down and build it. So it was constantly cool. sort of moving. We were we grew up in North York along the Bayview Corridor, um, sort of a completely different world then than, than, than now than it I was then. I think we then. talked about this. I grew up around Bayview and Finch area, between Steeles and Finch yeah, off of Bayview. Yeah, totally. So yeah. Uh, totally different world. I remember sort of, you know, being in a, sort of at home and mom and dad sort of having agents going back and forth and so they, they were buying their the first homes that they were buying in, in the early 80s were like for $35,000 and $40,000 wow. at the time so just to imagine sort of you know those same homes are now sort of you know the same teardowns that they were buying you know then are now trading for sort of you know million and a half two million it's so it's, it's amazing how in such a short period of time the city has gone through such an eruptive growth uh, growth phase. Well, that's a good good transition, I guess. To uh, you know, you're build you're building houses, and you know, there's unaffordability, and you start to get into the the condominium business. So uh, you didn't start in the condo business yourself, did you? Didn't did you not start sort of in the I, single family yeah, custom so I, home business as well? Yeah, for sure. So the the business when mom and dad ran it was a true design build, and hence sort of our corporate URL is still Task Design Build. Um, and they started off designing and building the custom homes. Um, I started doing my co-op terms from at, at the business and was involved in a number of sort of custom home sort of projects over the years. Um, and 
it was sort of as I was coming out of university, um, we started looking at sort of, you know, we started doing work with other developers, doing sales offices for them, doing sort of higher end condo design and build outs for them. And in 2002, sort of decided to have a go at it ourselves and bought our first development site in 2002 um, at the corner of Bathurst and Niagara and did our first development there, which was called Zed. And for us, it was really the sort of the anchoring philosophy at the time was how do we actually take design and, and make it more accessible? That design doesn't just have to be about sort of luxury and high end, um, but that sort of a design-based approach and a sort of a, a design philosophy can actually create value outside of just being sort of expensive. Um, and it was really that was the sort of the catalyst for that transition for us is that how do you actually take a design-minded approach and begin to look at it as something that becomes more accessible more broadly? That's a big, big leap, I guess, to go from custom homes to a downtown condominium. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? It, it was, um, you know, we had the benefit of data started investing in development projects, so it sort of been around it a bit. Um, and I guess that was, that's been sort of deeply embedded in our culture where, you know, we've always been risk takers. And as, as innovators, you need to have that, that willingness to, to, to take a leap of faith. Um, that remains deeply ingrained in our culture today as an organization. We are innovators. We lead through innovation. Um, and sort of the, the, the leading aspect of that for us is our commitment to impact and the fact that we are an impact company first that happens to use real estate as the platform that we, that we sort of manifest our impact through. Um, but it's that courage to sort of think differently, think outside the box, and, and the willingness to take the risk. But it's calculated risk, and I think that's part of what anchors our, our, our success to date and what's sort of driving as a, as a cultural character for who we are as an organization. Yeah. Yeah, I know the fundamentals of, of who you are obviously are deeply rooted in who, are, who you are as a person as well. But you, you, you had a comment there about uh, the value, creating value, but not necessarily spending more money, or you had a line there that I really liked. What, what was it you said? You said... Uh, as I think that the whole premise of, of sort of value, you know, design, value design, design can be looked at as a as an attribute of value creation. And design doesn't always have to be more expensive, but design can add value. Uh, and I think it's sort of that, that's a perspective we bring to all the work that we do is, is and, and again, it, it, it goes to, at a higher level, it goes to how do you actually design process, right? In the context of an, of a, of an industry, that has, is effectively, in a way, a production-based industry. We are deeply focused on actually changing the outcomes of our projects, but you can't do the same things over and over and expect a different kind of outcome. And so it's really in designing the way that we approach our projects and the way that we look at our projects that we've been able to leverage real estate as a force for impact and as a path platform to drive deep impact. Um, we're deep believers. We don't do this through an altruistic sort of viewpoint. Uh, we're, we're capitally driven. We're profit driven. We're very profitable as an organization. But for us, capital has more purpose than just financial profit alone. And as capital as a tool can drive deep impact for society. Um, but it needs a different approach top down and a redesign of the way we do things to actually be able to manifest sort of the power of capital as a solution for good sort of social good. So, so maybe let's go back to that. So, so Zed, you're, you launch at what, $300, $315 a square foot? $225. Wow. That's expensive. <laughs> really? $225? We, we, launched, we launched, so I remember we... 2003? We, we, we launched it in 2004. We bought Four. the site at, I think we were at $18 or $20 a square foot was our building cost. Um, construction cost at the time, I think, were $95 a square foot. <laughs> and uh, we'd launched at 225 I think we averaged out at 275 or under 300 bucks a foot when we were fully sold out. Um, 
but yeah, different different world. Twenty years ago, and in twenty years, we we you know that's the city. It, it's interesting though because I think fundamentally for us, um, if you told anyone twenty years ago that Toronto would be where it is, they would have laughed at you. And I think this is sort of something that's deeply embedded in the psyche of our of our city is that we actually have a hard time accepting ourselves for who and what we are and where we're going. Um, and I also see that as a significant missed opportunity. Today, the city sort of put out their their inclusionary zoning frameworks. And if we actually think about the fact that if we we'd thought about inclusionary zoning from 20 years ago, we would have been able to nip the butt on our, a lot of our affordability issues. But no one ever imagined we would be where we are. We, never, we did not have the confidence to be where we are today. And so we effectively self-perpetuated some of our challenges. Um, and really, the big opportunity for us looking forward is how do we garner the confidence and realize the extraordinary potential we have as a city, but lean into that in a deep way. Um, and I think that's part of, 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 the, of the big opportunity we have, but we have to be thinking for 20 years from now and making those decisions today. And, and this is really, again, an anchoring piece of our sort of mentality and our philosophy that our business is built to drive resiliency. And resiliency isn't about a extraction-based sort of economy where you're trying to take out as much you can today, but thinking about the work we do with city builders and the implications they have from a generational standpoint. Let me ask you a question. It's a bit off topic, but I'm interested because you're an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur who's got uh, a staff and overhead and sort of looking into the future, you must grapple with some of the same concerns or questions or worries that the city had 20 years ago about maybe, you know, having the confidence to be where you think you're going to be in five or 10 or 15 years from now and investing today for what you may not need for a few years. Do you as a, as a business owner and leader ever come up against that where you say something as simple as, you know, investing in more office space or investing in technology or investing in infrastructure for your organization do you ever get cold feet and say ah, i just don't know if we're going to be there i don't know if we're going to grow to be that size i don't know if we need that I, i've had a bit of a reverse problem okay we've always doubled down and invested way in advance we, we see I, I don't know how to i always tell our investors if you want quick money don't invest with me right um we play a long game on everything that we do everything we do is at a minimum looking 10 years out and so as we are building our team today, we're building our team for the next decade. Um, as we are investing in our systems and our platforms, it's a 10 to 15 year long sort of underwriting. Um, we invested in deep technology in the business starting five years ago. When COVID hit, it was a flick of a switch for us. We were online from one day to the next without a hiccup. Um, and that's because we'd made the commitment to move into a cloud-based operating platform five years ago, started that transition, and we're fully operating in the cloud starting three years ago. Um, and so to us, it, it ties into that overarching piece around if you're, if you're an organization who's focused on the fundamentals around resiliency, it starts from within. Right. You cannot take a position of building resiliency in the conduct of a city without actually understanding how you live it day in and day out yourself as a person, as a family, as an organization, and the cascade sort of continues from there. Um, and so what I'm most proud of as an organization is the consistency in which we do everything that we do as an organization. Um, and it's seen whether it's internally with our team members, and I would say the greatest asset we have are our team members, and we put a deep, deep emphasis on on everything that has to do with our teams. I will, I will, I will sort of cancel anything and everything if it comes to any of my team members. Like, they are number one, no questions asked. So if you ask me investor or, t or team member, team member, All like, day. no questions asked. 
Um, so I think it, it's sort of embedded in, into that belief that that if you believe in resiliency, if you believe in the long term, then the question around how you invest begins to be very clearly framed. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm always surprised at how many people are online and say, you know, Toronto's not New York, Toronto's not London, Toronto's never going to be those places. And we, we don't want to be those places. Why no, don't we be I think, Toronto? Listen, yeah. I, I think the <laughs> thing know? that's amazing with it is that, you know, I would say probably in the last seven to ten years, we've stopped comparing ourselves to New York. We've stopped aspiring to be New York. And I think we have, I love New York. Like I just, you know, I, I love, like I get out to New York all the time and I think New York is an incredible city. I'm in London a few times a year. I think it's amazing. Like we have amazing cities, but we're, we need to learn to love ourselves. I, I go agree. back to my comment off the top. Like <laughs> yeah. unless you, st- unless you start with loving yourself. Wait a second. Did you like, plan this? <laughs> no, isn't it? It's, that is, it goes back to my comment of consistency, yeah. right? Like, but you got to love yourself. And I think, and, and, and it's not, it's not the sort of the ego love. It's about love of self-respect, right? Like you, you can only pursue extraordinary and manifest your opportunity and your potential if it starts with a deep sense of gratitude towards yourself and it's the gratitude towards oneself that is that the premise of love right and and i think we need to love our city if we love our city if we if we want to cherish our city if we want to sort of create sort of the the, the or realize the great potential the city has then we have to look at it in a holistic sense right and and this is not a this is not a again an altruistic construct from a philanthropic lens this is about core fundamental business practices this is about building business resiliency and building a an ecosystems based approach that allows the city to nurture itself and grow and be able to deliver on its extraordinary right you know we, you, you, we love our galleries we love our restaurants we love our cafes we want incredible education for our kids well there's an entire infrastructure that goes into supporting those, right? So if the people who are delivering on all of these different facets aren't considered as part of our ecosystem, then what are we doing, right? People in in our market shun towards this notion of affordable housing. Well, if you actually look at what affordable housing is, the affordable housing we're talking about is housing for teachers, nurses, professionals, right? Social housing is a different piece and we still need social housing and we need government support to deliver social housing. But as an industry, if we can't get our heads around the fact that when we talk about affordable housing, it's actually for our own kids and for our own sort of cohort, like that's a real issue. And so it's not a matter of, hey, I don't want to give up money. It's actually investing it forward because we want to continue building these buildings. and We want to continue having people wanting to be in the system and being able to afford it. So, jumping a bit ahead of ourselves here, Ben, but I'm going to just, on the point, you know, you mentioned affordable affordability, affordable housing, and you, you, you touched on uh, inclusionary zoning a little bit earlier on. Uh, I haven't seen, personally, the new uh, framework, which they did really, was it today they released it? Obviously, really, yeah, it sounds like you, you've done a bit of work. And sort of what's your stance on... Uh, the, the the policy and and how is it going to play out? How's it going to affect? I think two questions, um, you know, and and unit prices as well as land prices, beginning say January or June twenty twenty two. Yeah, so I have not done the deep dive into it yet. Um, 
So as you've got garnered from my tone, I'm a fundamental believer in inclusionary zoning because I do believe that it actually drives the bottom line of our business. Right. Um, and so we're not in a we're not in a in a production based business that's churning product off the off the production line in three month cycles. We're doing this in five to ten year cycles in the work that we do. And so really thinking about it long term. Um, what I've been most critical about is how, how do we actually implement it? So it's not act, it's not about the, the 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 construct; it's about the implementation. Um, and I think where where we will face challenges is, is ensuring that we get the right implementation policies in place. And the win on this is going to have the industry being too uncomfortable and saying it's too much, and the city saying they're giving up too much. That's really the, the balance, and the win is going to be when when right when, when this tension actually exists. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do I believe it's right? Absolutely. Do we need it? For sure. Are we going to look back in 20 years and laugh that we didn't do it sooner? We're going to be there sooner than that. Um, but, you know, it it I would sort of take this maybe a level higher and talk about it in the construct, in the context of a fundamental paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift has to do with the real reallocation of capital in the way that our society works. And the notion that, you know, we've, we've always had, we've always been stuck in this sort of us versus them. We've been sort of public versus private, non-for-profit versus private. Like, so I think as we begin to rethink future states, we need to rethink sort of how we define the kind of paradigm, the sets of relationships and partnerships that are created between private and public sectors, how each of us can bring the strengths to the table and be able to sort of help deliver. From a housing standpoint, the private sector broadly, not just real estate, are the core beneficiaries of housing. That is to say, without housing, we do not have an employment base. And so as we think about the future state of our cities, how do corporations across the spectrum begin to participate in the way that we create accessible housing for the people that we want to work in our businesses? When you look at government, government's greatest strength is in its policy frameworks. Right? So how does policy actually begin to align as partners with the private sector versus the kind of the, the typical us versus them sort of discussions. Mm -hmm. And when you look at sort of institutional and non-for-profit partners, they too are, are, are fundamental players from a programming and delivery standpoint. So how do we collectively begin to sort of have a round table where it's not positions of defense, but it's attitudes of collaboration? Um, we're doing it. We've had extraordinary experiences with city staff over the last number of years. We haven't been to the OMB or LPAT in the last 12 years because we had our ass kicked and handed on over to us on a, on a project at, at Dundas and Bloor, which was called Giraffe. And we vowed we'd never go back to the OMB, and we haven't. But as a result of, we've had deep relationship with city staff. We've we've had a number of projects where we've applied and gotten more density than we applied for because of the deep level of engagement we've had with our our city colleagues and our community sort of stakeholders. And and it's and it's you know it's part of human nature where inherent to our survival tactics, we resist change. Change is a threat. Development inherently is change. It's threatening what people know is normative. And it's only once you bring people into the tent where everyone begins to understand how they can contribute and benefit from the kinds of change. We are huge believers that gentrification is inherent in a growing environment. But what we need to do is to be proactive to mitigate the displacement caused by gentrification. And again, that only happens through deep conversation and engagement. And so 
while development can have many adverse and negative impacts, it's often because of the siloed nature of the way that, that, that the system currently works, whether it's developer, city staff, communities. And it's once you break those apart that you actually begin to realize the potential of change as something that brings the various stakeholders together and creates opportunities for everyone. That's awesome. I'm. I'm. It's funny. I've been a supporter of inclusionary zoning, but it was always that there has in to the be in the closet too. Either no, no. <laughs> I, I. It's funny. I actually said it in a meeting once, and uh, my boss at the time was like, "Don't, don't say that." I'm like, "No, but I think this is how I think about it. I yeah, think 100%. that the city has to contribute, right? You yeah. have to. There has to be a trade-off. There is, you know, someone has to pay for these units, right? It can't 100%. just solely come from the new home buyers, essentially through, uh, or it's not going to come fully out of the land price. So the city has to make, you know, either give you a density bonus, either, you know, uh, fast track your development application or they take this they take the units themselves and they own those those units right, right. And, and and they put a deposit on them like any other purchaser and, and and they can be finished at a lower level or something like that uh, so I think there has to be some type of trade-off and they just I just think the way that they've done it now there is no trade-off they're just putting the, the burden and tiring on the development industry and the buyers uh, no, but to, listen, to do I, I think it. I think it needs to be sort of looked at in a different way they're not putting the burden on the development industry they're putting the burden on society. Right. Because right. it's it's really simple. Like as costs go up, developers pass that on to the consumer. Right. And the reason that it gets passed on to the consumer, it's not because it's a greedy developer who wants to make more money, but it's embedded into the way that the entire construct works. Right. If you cannot show to your bank that you're hitting certain profit thresholds, you will not get financing. For the if first you, time, someone on the show other than me has said that. <laughs> no, but it, it's, it's true. It, it's what it, I say all the time. Yeah. We talk about this, and you know, everyone knows it. But yeah. the system was built this way, and you're just playing within the rules. Of we're playing within. Yeah, we we we're dealing with it with an issue on a project right now. We're looking at doing a rental project, and we are we have larger units, and we're being told by our by our, by our financiers that our cost per unit is too high because the units we're building are too high. So it, the project isn't deemed financeable. Well, guess what? We have issues in the city around family units and having sort of units that are accessible for, 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 for sort of generational living. But now we're being told, actually, the financing model is, is, doesn't fit sort of what the product is. And so, well, that's it's why one, you go to an alternative lender like Cameron Stevens Mortgage <laughs> Capital. <laughs> Fine, well, it's from the ground up. <laughs> Thank you. That, that, you're welcome for that setup. Um, no, but, but joking aside, I, I again, the, the I think it's one of these sort of you know, it's almost like the black magic of the industry, right? It's all there's so much, and and part of the reason why we're so transparent and open about everything we do is that it's a big part of the education piece, right? It's Actually, huge. understanding from a consumer standpoint why, like, why do the prices go up? Why do this happen, right? It's sort of, it's not as though it's not an opportunity for developers to constantly make more money. If you think about the risk profile that developers take, it's an inordinate amount of risk relative to the sort of the returns that they're making. Now, people might argue, but you know, that's easy to say for a rich developer, like you make all the money and you complain about it. But, you know, the stresses that come along the way, because you're dealing in environments that are completely unpredictable. And, and we were talking before the show started. You look at construction pricing today, and one of the anomalies, which is to me completely baffles my mind, is the is the is the upside down model of co the condo business. Right? You're taking a product to market, you're selling it for a fixed rate before you've created the product, which is to build it, in an environment that costs are always going up. 
Right. We recently had a number of contracts which we'd signed with subtrades on a few of our buildings, and the trades have come back and said, we're not honoring our, our contracts. Go sue us if you want, but we can't afford to deliver on our contracts. Well, guess what? They're now charging us several million dollars more. I can't go back to my consumer and my purchasers and say, guys, I'm so sorry. You bought your condos. The prices have gone up. Right, so that piece well, you of the can, conversation. And people have right, and they cancel deals, and then all of a sudden they get, <laughs> and you know, then your reputation the gets thrown in the mud, right? But yeah, but the point being is, is that you it's not. And you shouldn't be able listen, to. Listen, the point of it being, like, you can do anything, but the system isn't set up for it, right. right? And so when we talk about the risks and we talk about sort of the realities of being on the industry, the part that the industry hasn't done well is communicate all these things. Right, so, it, it happens in kind of sort of in the boardroom. It happens under sort of this this hidden cloak. And so the consumer is actually in the dark about the realities of what it actually takes to deliver a project. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast. I was and I wanted it to appeal to a larger audience to be able to have these types of these large, these longer conversations, these one hour conversations with a developer where they can talk about more than just the, you know, the uh, 30 second sound bites that they get at a real estate conference that one media member might come and write one line about what you said at that, sure. uh, at, uh, at those events and it's you know I hear it from my clients all the time I, I give them a number and they go Ben come on I can't, yeah. I can't make any money, yeah. right? You know, and I actually need to build in a bigger buffer because of construction costs are going up so quickly that, yeah, my pro forma might work at the number you just gave me, but I can't launch at that yeah. because yeah. Uh, if I undersell this thing, then I end up like developer A and developer B over there that, that canceled, and now people are not supporting their next project because they canceled the last one, I right? Think, I think one, th one of the reasons that we did this, it is like there's this mass misunderstanding of people in this business particularly developers are just painted with this like terrible brush of uh, negativity and greed and selfishness and I, I i would argue that every person we've had on the show and i will uh look at the top of my page this time we're on episode number 27 and i think if you were to like have a one-on-one -on -one, anybody in the city whether it be uh city staff uh, just any civilian off the street con converse with yourself or, or people that do this for a living, they would really realize, you know, these are normal people. They're hardworking. They're trying e to easy there. Easy there. Like there, <laughs> there's a bunch of shysters out there of course, as well. But I'm, I'm just think... saying, I would say the 27 episodes we have, have had, yes. I would say for the most part, generally speaking, it's, Listen, it's refreshing to hear you say it. We say it all the time. I try to explain to our, to the people who do listen, the odd person who tunes in, you know, like you need to make money to build a condo or you won't get financing. It's the way the system's set up. We yeah, live in Canada. We have a very conservative banking system. If you go to the United States, it's extremely different. Talking about New York, you go to New York, there's no, there's, you can build whatever you want, wherever you want. You don't need pre-sales and there's about 75 banks on the island. And 20% yeah. and 20% inclusionary housing on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's it's, it's it's a different world. It's a different world. And we, are, we, and are, we are stuck in the system be, for better or for worse, right? Like, here we are. I would never, I've been very fortunate to have traveled to many places, if not most places in the world. I would never want to be anywhere else other than the city. There we go. Amen. We live in the most extraordinary city in the world. The city's not the problem. It's the people who live here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's us. Yeah. No, and, and, I, and I say us collectively. Like, I mean, it's not, not like not excluding our current company. Like, we are all part of this, right? The industry has the reputation that it does because it's earned it, right or wrong, right? 
And it's because of the fact that it's, you know, we're going through fundamental transitions in the industry. We're going through fundamental generational change in the industry. This industry has grown leaps and bounds in a time when no one would have believed that it would sort of go through this change. We're faced with the greatest contemporary dilemma in the Western world, in that we are the fastest growing city in the Western world. We're the most culturally diverse metropolitan in the entire world. We have gone through iterations of ourselves in a way that no one would have ever imagined. And it's culminating in this this sort of this series of these stressors that are actually all a result of the great success that we've had. And so it's this moment of social pause for us as a society to be able to actually think about what do we want to be when we grow up? And by the way, we've grown up. So it's like we've arrived now. And, you know, we, we hear it and read about it in the context of sort of business books and the like, where the hardest thing to actually manage is culture change. Well, we're now dealing with that at a society level, right? We're dealing with a society that today looks fundamentally different than 40 years ago. New York doesn't look fundamentally different. London doesn't look fundamentally different. Hong Kong doesn't look fundamentally different. Toronto looks fundamentally different. Absolutely. Right? And so... As we think about sort of the challenges we discuss, it's the flip side of the opportunity coin, right? And so how do we actually take on a lens around leveraging the opportunities? And I'll give you, again, off the top, you said I'm part of the Bentway, I'm part of the AGO. The AGO today has the most extraordinary collection of art installations that I would say compared to anywhere else in the world. You have an Andy Warhol retrospective on, you have a Picasso show on that is the first of in terms of the blue and the and, and the rose series you have a caribbean exhibition on that's is sort of about a artistic history of, of the caribbean islands you have an unbelievable array of, of video-based installations going on at the gallery like this is world caliber art right in our backyard the bentway has become recognized globally as one of the top public space programmers in the world Right. This is in our own backyard. Right. Five years ago, the space under the gardener was a derelict piece of infrastructure. We just launched an extraordinary show by Montreal-based artist Raphael Lorenz Harmer, who has done a piece called Pulse Typology. It's 3,000 light bulbs in a storage space under the gardener where the lights are choreographed to the heartbeats of the people in the room. Right. It's epic, right? It's in our own backyards, right? We have people coming globally to see the show, but we forget to celebrate what we've done ourselves internally, yeah. right? And it, I go back to my comment of love thyself, right? We have to have a pride of place. And, and this is the big opportunity for Toronto sort of maturation. I often refer to Toronto as an 18-year-old teenage boy who 70% of the time acts really dumb, but that 30%, when it shines, oh boy, does it shine because you <laughs> see like how that. incredibly sort of smart it is and what the incredible potential of it is. Right? I think I, I think we do a fantastic job in terms of you know delivering units and, and, and getting people in the city because I want everyone to have the opportunity to be in Toronto and to, to live in Toronto. 
I, I make a point of almost every weekend traveling to a different part of the city and experiencing a different part of the city. I, uh, if anyone that follows me on Instagram knows, I, I'm a big fan of street art and I'm trying to find every piece that there is in the, uh, in the city. And I think of, you know, some of these build trips that I've been on and some of these, you know, vacations that I take. And I always pick up a real estate magazine and I look and, you know, there's, you know, every unit in Miami is a thousand to 2000 square feet, Boston, you know, everything's big. There's no condo market for first time buyers. Right. And I think, uh, people, people like to criticize the amount of investors that buy, but they're, they're creating supply of small units. And yes, they're not affordable for the average income person, but they're creating a lot more affordable product than anywhere else in the world. To be able to live in a brand new unit with the amount of amenities that you have and the access to uh, the type of amenities. And yes, I, w- I went down to the Bentway and got some good shots of all the, the long basketball hoops and all, ca- all the cool stuff. Yeah, that's my mom's installation. It's spectacular. Yeah, it's, like just it, so, it's, it's so fun. Homegrown and, talent. Like yeah, it's just, she's an incredible artist. Yeah, so cool. She's had an incredible sort of show at the at the age at the, at the Hamilton Art Gallery recently. But again, another example of sort of it's happening right here right um, and it's and it's pretty amazing yeah so I don't know if I had a question in there at, at all but I will I will complain that I went to the AGO and I bought a ticket for me and my mother and I didn't know that it didn't come with the uh, Andy Warhol exhibit you had to buy that separate I'm like what is what is this why don't you bring her back? We'll make sure you get in. Okay, thank you. Done. Wow, <laughs> there we go. Cutting deals. Do we, do we want so, to jump? Do we want to jump back into his career? I, or? I want to ask a question because we had something written down here about um, a project that you did that at three seventy five King. Oh, three seventy five. Okay. Yeah, and it was it was a partnership with Lifetime Developments, and we we sort of briefly touched on it. it didn't before start the show. as a life project as a partnership with Lifetime Development. <laughs> yeah. It so didn't. It did not. It did not. So, so, so it ultimately I'm, ended up being. It was, but it ended up being an incredible partnership and I'm happy to share the story. I would love to hear the story and then at the end I need God bless his soul one Sam Herzog story. Oh my God. I, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So started our development business in 2002 and we were going gangbusters. Um, and, you know, as a 20-something-year-old, anything I touch seemed to turn to gold. Our biggest piece was the approval that we got on our 375 King Street project, which we ultimately branded as M5V. And our portfolio was growing, and the only thing growing bigger was my ego. Um, and it was that typical developer ego. Humming along, 2008, we hear sort of the rumblings in the U.S., financial crisis hits, and we continue to believe we're invincible. 2009, the Canadian market starts getting shaky. Easter long weekend of 2009, get a call from our banks in the morning. And they're like, we'd like to meet. And I figure it's long weekend. They want to go for a drink. They say, no, come to our boardroom and have your father come with you. Show up. We love you guys. You're great. But for now, we're calling you on tens of millions of dollars. You have two weeks to deliver. Otherwise, we're calling all of your debt. And (laughs) went out. That afternoon, sent out a cash call to our investors. By noon on Friday, everyone had turned us down and said that they have written off their investments and that they wished us good luck. And wow. that sort of effectively was the was the was the sort of rug pulled from underneath Hold, us. I gotta and pause you for a sec because you know going back to your original comment about how about risk, you know, and how everybody talks about this business just being so easy, and you build condos and you make tons of money. Until you lose it all. <laughs> Until you lose it all, folks. Until you lose it all. No, this is it. No, this is, these this, are the stories. That, like, that is, as an entrepreneur, 
you have investor capital. Like there is an extraordinary amount of risk that goes into this business and goes along with this business. And those who decide or just you know neglect that, it just it drives me nuts, and I'm sure it drives you crazy as well because it's your own capital. It's does it it doesn't drive me crazy. It, It is you know you only know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's fair. And, and there's a that's big a part of that. It. And listen, we we went effectively went bankrupt. Um, went from a staff of 45 people. So this is April, April. This is, uh, April, this is April of 2009. Between April and June of 2009, we went from a staff of 45 down to a staff of five. Pretty much lost everything um, as an operating business. We had a bunch of assets, but like we didn't have any cash. Um, and so... One of our big our big project at the time was M5V, and that's the the, the project that sort of started the the domino effect. Uh, one of our partners uh, was was partners with Lifetime Development, and he brought them to the table, and and it was a really really hard pill to swallow. You know, M5V was was the one project that unlocked the kings. You know, TIFF had been approved. We'd taken M5V through the OMB process. We lost once at the OMB. We appealed and went back again. We won. It became the most sort of catalytic win at the time. Um, completely reset the whole King West paradigm around development. And, you know, this was going to be the one that we were going to sort of ride into the sunset with. Right. Um, and we got around the table with Lifetime and they said, great, sort of will come in and by the way we're taking it all over you can have a seat at the table and it was crushing um and you know it was you know with the benefit of hindsight you know george frankfurt and mel pearl are both now dear friends and i i, I have incredible regard for them and sam herzog who god rest his soul has passed away um i call it my my herzog mba or my herzog mba um, over the span of the next two years, we would meet bi-weekly. Sam Herzog would tell me I'm the biggest fucking idiot he's ever met, and I did everything <laughs> wrong, and I'm such a stupid moron. Sounds and, all right, and, <laughs> from what I've heard. You know, God bless him. Like it, w- it was the greatest possible lesson. Uh, you know, to be able to have a mentor like him, you know, really call it for what it is. And you know, it was, it was. There was always there was a layer of, of, of Samism in it, but. You know, he he cared, and and that was the thing that was incredible with Sam is that you always knew what he thought, and he was as as sort of as straightforward and and sort of committed as there could be, um, and so it was an incredible it was an incredible learning lesson, and 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 you know I I I feel incredibly sort of loyal to 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 the to our partners at, at Lifetime because they were genuinely great partners. They you know they did what was right by the project and and ultimately we all sort of garnered great success coming out of it before you tell us the sam story what would be the How one many thing more sam stories you want uh, I, I need a, <laughs> I need i need like a like i walked into the border one day before i even sat down he had kicked me out something like that let you think about it while i ask this question you know you, you meant you made a you made a comment about cash and it's something that we you know we, we spend a lot of time watching in our business and then you know there's a good line that i always operate by is cash isn't cash unless it's cash um, and you run out of cash and you're in, you know, like you said, your late twenties and all of a sudden it's gone and you go from 45 to five looking back on it, pre partnering with lifetime, what would be the one lesson you took from that experience that you apply to your business today? If you don't have money, you don't have money. <laughs> so cash isn't cash <laughs> unless it's cash. <laughs> like right back at you. Yeah. Um, no, listen, I, I, like I would say for us, um, it was really this idea of how to bridge 
sort of innovation, extraordinary design leadership with the pragmatics of financial underwriting. Um, at the end of the day, we're in the business of finance and development. Um, like you can sort of spin it however no, you're right. you want. You're right. um, it's really how you structure your your equity and your debt. Financial engineering um, is what I call it. Uh, yeah, and I, I would I would I would I, I completely agree with that. And I think part of it is that there's often such a negative connotation with financial engineering. It sounds like you're you're sort of trying to be elusive or trying to be sort of you know shady yeah. with it, but it. No. It truly is this element of how do you manage debt and equity? Yeah, and how, and how do you how do you how do you manage the capital stack at the end of the day too? Right, 100%. like there's so many different layers of, of and it, slices and, of and cash. And the, you the can other put in part there. of that is really around how you buy. What saved us coming out of the financial well, crisis is that, and which we continue to do, is that we've always bought ahead of the curve, right? We've always gone into neighborhoods and bought in areas where it wasn't sort of following sort of the herd. Um, and so we were able to sort of create deep value around the things that, that we that we'd acquired, which also has always enabled us to deliver deep impact around the things that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we've been sort of early adopters from that standpoint. So it was really sort of sort of reemphasizing and reinforcing sort of our ability to sort of acquire well, understanding how to manage debt and debt and equity. So the you know really how you construct your capital stack. And then recognizing coming out of that, that, you know, we were going from an industry that had historically been family based to one that was institutional. Right. Deals were getting larger. Equity checks were getting bigger. And the process was getting more complex. And longer. Okay. Well, let me get yeah. back to the, that innovation part. I know that uh, that M5V was the first lead gold certified uh, building. And I, get, I mean, I get asked this question by, by, by clients every once in a while is, how much value is there in trying to be more environmentally friendly in these projects? Is it is it something, you know, that you believe that the, the purchasers are willing to pay for? Or is this, you know, is it a passion project of yours? Or can it be a little bit of both? Great question. So, and M5V was the first lead gold certified building. I think we were at sort of timing-wise, it was us, Tridel, and Minto, who all of us had a project within a sort of a 12-month period of one another. Um, or we had the, the sales office we did at M5V was the first lead certified and probably the only lead certified sales officing that was ever built. Um, I go back to, again, the what is the cascade of the first principles, right? As an impact company, for us... Our environmental footprint is not up for negotiation, right? The way we look at it is, am I going to take bread out of my child's mouth? Am I going to burden my children with my financial extraction methods? Or am I going to be considerate of their generation and my grandkids' generation and they and those that follow beyond? We are fundamentally moving towards a society and a system that is shifting towards value-based consumerism and away from pure consumption-based consumerism. Does the consumer pay me more for my product? I don't think so. But am I making a lot of money with what I'm doing? And is the incremental investment I'm making to future generations worthwhile? I completely believe so. Does that mean that when a buyer is choosing between me and the next building, they'll opt to come to my product because there's a values alignment? 
I do genuinely believe that. Now, in a market like Toronto, where everything has been on the rise, it's harder to justify because everything is on the rise. But we don't look at things that are constantly on the rise. There will be moments where things are not on the rise. There'll be moments where there'll be an oversupply of product. And if someone's going to buy, they're going to choose where they're going to get more. As I said over the course of the conversation, we're investing it in 10 to 20 year intervals, right? We believe in our assets. We believe we're, we're building a lot of rental building today because we actually believe in what we build. We don't differentiate between our condo product and our rental product. Some might argue that's not the wisest thing to do because one we're selling, the other one we're keeping, but it's the consistency in the brand proposition. It's the consistency in this commitment to delivering deep impact across everything that we do and ensuring that we are playing a role in mitigating the downside effects for future generations, right? Does it create value? I believe that when you look at it holistically, when you look at it from a portfolio viewpoint, absolutely it does, right? Our private equity business was the first accredited social impact real estate sort of private equity platform in Canada. We continue to be the leaders in that space. There is no greenwashing with what we do. The sort of impact is our DNA. It's not, we don't pick and choose what we do impact on. Everything we do has impact built into it. We're the first developer that signed up for FutureFit, which is a measurement platform out of the UK where we've committed to measuring everything we do and we'll be issuing our first measurement report next year, right? You know, ESG is the precursor to impact. Mm -hmm. We were ESG 10 years ago. Today, we're impact. Impact is where you're actually driving change. And the reason that we committed to FutureFit is that as a platform, FutureFit isn't measuring what you do additively. It's actually measuring the net impact you're having. There's a lot of companies that are now coming out and saying, oh, look at this good green initiative we have. But they're not measuring for all the adverse impacts they're having on society as well. Our deep commitment is to actually measuring our net impact. And as an organization, when we talk about impact, it's wholesome in everything that we do. And that's something that is uncompromising for me personally and sort of a cascade down into our entire team. So how, how's all this paid off within your organization? Because you talk about you know your impact in the community, your impact in the buildings, but how's it impacted the people that work for you, who you mentioned that are far and away the most important part of your business? You know, no one works for me. Uh, and I think that's something that I've been adamant about. Um, we've created a values-based organization where people are coming in because it aligns with their value set and they are working towards what they personally believe to be their passion place. Right? Our number one requirement when you work in our company is that you're taking a job that aligns with your personal passion and that we're part of your journey for as long as it's relevant. I've helped, I don't know how many people in our company move on to their next job. And it's very self-serving for me because if you're living out your passion, you're putting in 110%, we're the beneficiaries of it. Mm -hmm. The moment you've lost that passion within our organization and you want something different, it's better for you to leave for us and for you. Right? And so... Our first principles and our deep commitment to impact and our values-based sort of approach brings people in who align with our values as opposed to working for a paycheck and working for the man. I don't believe in that. It's just not part of our culture. 
Right. And so yeah. deeply, it's embedded in the fact that we're a platform for you to grow and explore and expand your own potential. The effort that it takes for us to deliver our projects, I would say, is at least at a minimum, a twofold of the typical development project. Everyone works harder, but everyone plays harder. That's amazing. Um, I do want to ask, you did mention briefly. I, I, think, I think Ben might... Uh applying for a job at the end of this. <laughs> yeah. I think I've mentioned on Twitter, I think, you know, Tass and, and uh, Hallmark are the two coolest developers in, in Toronto. And I, I've said that I'm, several I'm times. I'm humbled to be considered in the same I, company I, as The development industry nice. would have a much better reputation if uh, if people operated like the, the two of you do and, and in terms of uh, in terms of trying to make a, a product that uh, works for everyone and, and that it's beautiful and, you know, on the ground level is not overwhelming, which I think is one of the, the biggest issues where they just see a, you know, a tower come in that replaces their, you know, five little shops with one big <laughs> shopper's drug mart or, a, yeah. or a big box, and uh, it just doesn't seem to fit. Right? They want things to uh, things to fit. But uh, I do I do want to get back to uh, the project that you mentioned earlier because it's probably the the most well known condo project cancellation in Toronto's history. <laughs> <laughs> probably oh, my because poor giraffe. You know, its legs cut off and then its neck. The Remnants of your marketing is still on the site. It is still there. I was actually, look, I actually years later. I googled it today. The address, <laughs> and uh, I was with Sean. You know Sean Fleming because yeah, I was yeah, in his totally. office and we were chatting, and I told him about this uh, this show. And he first of all said to say hi, and and uh, pulled up the address. He's like, I wonder if the the hoarding's still there or the or the paint on the yeah. building. And it's sure there. enough, there it was. It's still there. Yeah, because I, I remember I went to the sales office and you were giving a little presentation on the on the project, and this was like. February 2009 and you're like the world is changing <laughs> dramatically right you're, so, you're right <laughs> and and I you know at the time I was like oh whatever right you know it's just a little blip not knowing the, the the major the much more major impact it would have in the United States than it had on 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 our market but I mean obviously you did not get the project approved uh, <laughs> what 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 in your underwriting did you miss the power of the community um, and that was really a, a, a sort of a really significant sort of shifting point for us as an organization. We we heard the community. We weren't listening to the community. And listen, I could turn it into, you know, and justify through a whole multitude of the political sort of nuances that sort of align that like this, the that, the like, you know, was there a lot of other things at play? Absolutely. But the reality is there always is a lot of other things at play. And so... You will never know what you don't know, but it's on how you show up. And we showed up with our big developer ego, telling the community what was good for them, telling them that we knew better, as opposed to engaging and listening. And we got crushed, you know. If you look at it still, we were across from two 27-story towers. It's the third busiest transit hub after Union Station. Union Pearson Line subway, streetcar, bus line, like it is screaming for density. And, you know, we got a ruling that sort of said, you're wrong. And so, again, the, the really the big takeaway was like, how do you actually show up to listen versus playing the game and just hearing? Hmm. It's deep. <laughs> it's very deep. Well, so hold on. So, so just ahead. just on that though, you, you have not lost at the OMB since we haven't been to the OMB since. We haven't been to the OMB since, and I think your your key 
takeaway from that. You know, you've humbled yourself. You've learned to listen. You want to be part of the community. You want to engage. I like what you said. You said you want to bring everybody into the tent. And this philosophy seems to be working, well, not seems to be, is working for you. Why doesn't every developer take that approach? This is my passion play. I'm not here to judge whether we're not, the way we do it is not the only way to do it. Um, and I have incredibly talented and brilliant colleagues in the industry who've garnered deep success and some and many much greater success than I have. But it's in how we define success, right? Um, we're an impact company first that uses real estate as our platform, right? Our notion of success isn't around the number of projects we have, the amount of square footage we have, the size of what we have. Listen, we're over 20 projects. We have over 7 million square feet underway right now. Like, it's not like downplaying the importance. The, the, the scaling for us, we've grown the business and scaled it because we believe that the level of impact we want to achieve requires a certain level of scale to be able to actually afford to do these things. What, what I mean by that is I have a team dedicated to impact in our company. Well, I can't have that staffing if we don't have scale the scale of projects simple right we don't you know we're, we're delivering on a multitude of things that it's only through their collective sort of pooling that we're able to drive the kind of impact that we want to achieve right so why don't others do it they have their prerogatives we have ours and there's no judgment as, as to what's right or wrong but we have a very transparent playbook because for me to achieve the level of impact we want, we would hope to be able to share with the rest of the industry how we do it and the, and the profitability and the, and the success we're having to bring others on the journey with us because collectively we can have far bigger impact for future generations than we as a tiny developer could ever have on mm -hmm. our own. I wanted, to, I wanted to jump ahead because you, you told the story of uh, of you know going from forty five staff to five staff, and I was you know just reading on your uh, your website that you've now raised two hundred and seventy five million dollars in equity capital. So how did you go from uh, a company that needed someone to, to to bail them out to convincing all these investors that you're you're the guy to place your money with? Like what, what's give us uh, what, what was the pitch? <laughs> I have an insurance policy that I that I bring along um as uh, i think it is we we shun failure in our society here um and i wear it as a what do you mean here sorry you say in, here. in canada uh, right we're very in, in conservative comparison. in comparison to the u.s in the u.s it's sort of, okay bankruptcy is yeah, okay bankrupt like oh, in the u.s you go bankrupt in one state where you move to another and like bob's your uncle like no no one ever sort of cares yeah uh, we have a very small system here right so everyone's very sort of shy and protective and sort of you know it's conservative sort of we're conservative. extremely we're, conservative we're very, going very back conservative. to the banking system we're very conservative and you know i wear my failures with pride it's sort of like, as, as if you ask my 10 year old son what's the difference between a winner and a loser a winner is a loser who got up um, and that's what we are. We're a loser that got up. We've lost. Um, and I, you know, to me, there's no greater growth and learning that comes from, from, than from failure, right? Um, we learn deeply and we've applied it. And so, you know, why do our investors give us money? I think we're very consistent in our messaging. I think we're very, we're consistent in everything we do. Our magic is that we create value entrepreneurially and we govern and lead uh, institutionally. 
Um, I would put our operations, our reporting, our, our frameworks up against any institutional platform. Our executive team are, you know, come from the biggest and top institutional organizations in this country. But our passion and our vision is you know, really crisp and clear, and we have a track record now. It's no longer a you know, trust me moment. There's a track record that sort of shows it. Yeah, it wasn't the $275 million you raised. It was probably the first, second, third that was probably the, the real legwork and, and regaining 100%. that trust and rebuilding the track record. Obviously, um, like you said, it's not easy, but it was probably a humbling experience. But you're you're an honest person, and you learned a lot. and And I think if you tell that story and you're transparent, like you, uh, like you are, it's um, something. It's a story and, and a investment people want to buy into. So good yeah, for you. And listen, I think that 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 whether it's whether it's for our investors or whether it's our, our team members who come along, right? It's all part of that same story, right? And I think what people value is is the transparency, the honesty, and ultimately the consistency. Uh, and that is where you create values alignment. So what's um, what's on the horizon? I mean, you're you you're a visionary. You've already you're establishing your legacy as we speak. What what's on the horizon for for TAS? Where do you see yourself in the ten year the next ten years? Where would you like to be when we wake up and we, we're going to record again in 2030, <laughs> 2031. 2031. <laughs> yes, and we to me success would be you know becoming recognized as the global global leader in impact real estate. Like, like for me, you know, we don't we don't set our bar relative to Toronto. I say to my team consistently, we want to set global precedence for what extraordinary is, and we will not stop at anything to achieve that. We're, that we're deeply committed to that. Does that mean you're you're an international builder, or do you plan to remain here locally in Toronto? Uh, listen, I don't. I you know, we used to have an office in Dubai. We've done work in China. Like it's sort of once you once you've traveled for work, it doesn't matter how many business class flights and private jets and. You know, it's seven-star hotels. You said it just—it's your own bed is your own bed at the right. end of the day. Um, I think that we are—you know—I know we're a global city. We can have global impact from our own backyard. Right. Right. It doesn't mean that we need to sort of leave to do it. Um, would we work internationally again? Yeah, if it's the right opportunity, if it's the right partners, if it's the right that, absolutely we would. But we're not—we're not hungry to leave to have impact. And I think that's something that is fundamentally part of the psyche we have here. We can create global extraordinary in our own backyard. We have global extraordinary in our own backyard. I talked about the AGO. I talked about the Benway. Look at Waterfront Toronto. Waterfront Toronto and the work that that, that, that organization is doing is globally leading sort of waterfront redevelopment. Now, some will say, yeah, but look at look at look at Chicago, look at look at sort of Oslo, look at their waterfronts. They had different starting points. Way right? different. It's, it, it's about understanding the relative starting point and the constraints within which you're working. Right. And I do believe that the trajectory of that organization is one that is taking sort of global leadership in, into account. Um, so success for us, yeah, we want to be regarded as global leaders in impact in impact focused real estate development and impact focused city building. Uh, and well, that would be well, let me for us. let me read this point because uh, some people might not know exactly you know what impact means. And I'm going to read this is from your uh, your impact statement. So uh, this was the second bullet point: focus our pursuit to positively impact people and the planet by tackling climate change, broadening affordability and equity, and building social capital. Um, you also say in in uh, in a document that I pulled that we believe that profit is foundational but not the only goal. We measure success in our ability to push boundaries of innovation to better serve the people of today and future generations. So 
I guess the question that kind of comes out of that is, is if you have a lender and maybe they don't, they don't care about climate change. Maybe they don't care about social capital or equity. Is that just, you just close the door on them and say, oh, we'll go to a, a, a lender. We'll go to someone that does care about those things. Or do you try to educate them? Um, I believe that any form of leadership comes or brings with it the responsibility for education. Success to me is to be a resource. And as a resource, you're constantly educating and bringing people along. I always sort of say innovation is a two-handed approach. One hand is in front leading you. The other hand is behind you bringing everyone along. When we started our, our, our private equity business um, 10 years ago, and I would talk about impact investing, people would look at me as though I had horns on my head. Today, we're the cat's meow because it's everyone's, everyone's an ESG platform now. Yeah. Everyone's an impact investment platform now, and the banks are all hungry for it. And every, like, So I feel like having, having played the kind of leadership role, and we invested 10 years ago with a 10-year mindset, well, it, it's, it's sort of manifesting itself. I talked about the ego getting inflated. And... Part of the incredible sense of empowerment around that is that as a leader, you begin to realize that the greatest role of leadership is being a servant leader. And as a servant leader, you're constantly looking at how do you help bring everyone along. When you're committed to impact at the level and at the depth that we are, we're not doing this on our own. We have to bring everyone along. This isn't a singular pursuit. It's a collective pursuit that requires everyone in the tent. And people are going to be hesitant to come into the tent. It's on us, in order to achieve what our lofty goals and ambitions are, to engage and empower everyone to come and join us in the tent. We see that as a huge part of our responsibility in order to lead the way that we do. That's amazing. That would be a good place... uh to uh, to segue into the next section of the podcast because I think we've we've covered a lot and I don't know Ben if you have any more questions but yeah you know I, I guess there was an announcement today that you are oh. um, doing the uh, and I'm going to get the name wrong again the, uh, oh, the <laughs> Wellington the Wellington Destructor the Wellington yeah. Destructor which I Sorry, thought we, was we, I, you know, I was something reading that, about it before you got yeah, here yeah I thought too. it was something that you were building to fight the Death Star but maybe uh, <laughs> may, maybe give us an idea of what that is in the and the scope of the larger project around it and then we'll, yeah, we'll totally. then we'll we'll start to wrap her up all right uh so the wellington destructor is located in the i feel like we need some sound effects on this show for <laughs> moments like this we have the wellington destructor the wellington destructor yeah, well, so it's located in the south niagara neighborhood which is the southwest quadrant of, of uh king and bathurst um, it is sort of tucked in and around a property called the Abattoir, which we acquired five years ago, um, and that we have are sort of moving ahead with with that project. It's um, the Abattoir site. Um, we have approvals for about a million square feet of mixed use development, including affordable housing, um, retail spaces, office spaces. We're doing condo and rental on that project. Um, and then we also have what was announced today is the, the destructor, which sort of almost sits in the belly of our site as it sort of wraps around it. And that will be turned into a really interesting sort of community-based anchor uh, with a diversity of uses from sort of community-accessible spaces, ateliers in terms of artist studios and workshops, right down to sort of uh, light industrial sort of development and production. When we acquired the site, we always 
envisioned sort of the the precinct uh, being sort of from Front Street from uh, sorry from from Bathurst Street across to Strawn. Um, you have the the stacked uh, container market that is sort of right at the foot of Bathurst and Front Street. We're right adjacent to that. There's a public works yard, which the city is envisioned to be converted into a public park into the future. Then you have Stanley Park, and you've got the bridge connecting over to Fort York. Fort York is connected into the Bentway. So it is this extraordinary sort of 100 acres, effectively, of park, green space, like a whole diversity of uses, and we sit right in the middle of this. Um, our site proper with the destructor site and the public works yard is about 12 acres of land. Um, it's all been designed as a campus. It'll be the only true campus setting in sort of in, in the downtown. Um, no vehicular access. It's all pedestrian based. And really sort of this reimagining of what we believe is sort of extraordinary sort of urban intervention. Um, and so the city announced today that we've been the successful proponent on the bid for the destructor. Um, and we're really excited about our partnership with the city um, in terms of bringing not just that sort of particular asset sort of into its sort of future state, but really the entire project and part of what we call sort of living heritage. Um, and for us, you know, the success of our of our of our two Tecumseh site has been very much anchored around sort of the 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 view that we take that as developers, we're only writing a chapter. There were chapters that preceded us and there'll be chapters that come after us. And our role is to sort of understand the heritage of place. And the heritage of place isn't about just the buildings. It's about the work that was done there. It's about the communities that are there. It's about sort of the life that was lived. And understand that the work that we do has deep impact on the future generations of the chapters that they're going to write. Um, and this project really sort of exemplifies our deep belief and commitment to being stewards of the land that we have been sort of gifted to sort of have, have leadership over, but recognizing that we're stewarding it for the next generation. That's awesome. Very cool. So do you keep the name? Pardon? The do you one? keep the name? God, it'll be hard not to. I mean, I almost feel like we need some swag. Like, if you make a hat that says "The Destructor," uh, and I don't get one, I, I, I will allow you to be the creative director on on that uh, on that initiative. I, yeah, yeah. I'm the captain of the Wellington Destructor, and you could be the first mate. <laughs> the first you know? mate. <laughs> I want like a, a dad, like a pink dad hat, like that one. Done. But I want it to like in small writing, all lower. Can case, I just ask a quest, clarifying the question? Why did you have to? Justified as a dad hat. <laughs> well, it's kind of. A, I like that. Dad hats are like in right now. It's like uh, dad I feel hats. you're backtracking here a bit. Maybe, no we, maybe we should be wrapping this up. <laughs> no, no. I actually just had a whole bunch of Cameron Stevens dad. Hat. I got two hats made. I had the dad hat, and then I had the, the trucker hat with the rope across the front. I, Both I, of which I, I, I'm going to give you guys before you leave. Uh, nice. I look nice. forward. I look forward. You probably to will never wear, wear either of them because they're quite out there but i will make sure that you see me in public wearing one <laughs> <laughs> all right so okay. our last section that we typically do is rapid fire so we're you know we're looking for you know five to ten uh word responses to these uh to these questions so no one ever sticks to five or ten yeah words. Well, we, we we try we try so this we, one should this one should be easy so okay you have an upcoming development at seven labat so what is a better beer labat blue or labat 50 neither <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is good. Yeah, that's a good guy or just a wine guy? One word answers, guys. You guys said this is rapid <laughs> yeah. fire. Don't that's a, that's no, a I'm, question. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm I not just, taking the, I'm not going I for the I just said IPA, IPAs or wine. 
Wine. Good, good, good. What, what is it? better, window wall or curtain wall? Curtain wall. More bike lanes or more subway lane, subway lines? Bike lanes now, subway lines later. Okay, that's good. That's cool. Um, oh, this is this is a good. good well, it's not a great question, but I thought it was a funny question that I'm actually curious about. So, because you're the cool developer, <laughs> do architects propose buildings that are way out there for you? Managing the design expectations is a huge part of the work we have to do. Um, and it's really the ability to bridge and harness the creative energy with the pragmatic realities of delivering. So it only took three questions for him to... That, yeah, but that was yeah, yeah, that, Come on, you can't ask me a paragraph <laughs> and I deliver a sentence. <laughs> okay, here's a good one. What do you think the rent premium is for purpose-built rental in comparison to similar leased condos nearby? 10%. It's the number that I tell my clients. I'm glad we're on the same page. Okay. Should we get rid of blind bidding for resale in Ontario? Absolutely. I think so, too. The size of new condos are shrinking rapidly in downtown Toronto. Are you worried that we're moving to dorm-style buildings? If we're not already there, in some cases? No. As we change the size of our units, we have to reimagine the way we monetize the buildings. Oh, that's Boom. good. That's a big one. That's okay. a good answer. Um, I, I, I did a little. I did a little searching last night on October twenty eighth, twenty twenty. Greg C, which is at C underscore Shadow Spaces, in response to a tweet about your project, said, "So much public money is spent, Section thirty seven, from property taxes to increase property values for developers and the rich." And my question will be, do you feel like you're paying your fair share of taxes and fees to the city of Toronto? I would reframe that question as to who actually pays taxes. Because as a developer, we just consider the taxes we pay as another cost line in our product. And so whatever we pay in taxes gets transferred over to the consumer. The reality is that every tax we pay is a cost to the consumer. The question is, do we allocate our taxes accordingly to drive affordability in our city? And the answer to that is... I'll no. leave it up. I'll leave it up for for debate on, on another episode. <laughs> so you're uh, you're a grad of uh, the University of Waterloo, and uh, we do a lot of business in KW. Do you see you yourself ever going uh, west along the 401, Guelph, Cambridge, Waterloo, Kitchener, maybe even London? Um, we've just acquired our first property in Hamilton, um, nice. so we're we're super excited about Hamilton. Um, I feel like we missed the boat in many ways on on Kitchener-Waterloo, sort of London. Having said that, if the right opportunity comes along, absolutely. We, like, we, were, we would, be, would be quite keen, and we think those are great markets. As we get along well with uh, Scott Higgins. Yeah. Remember, we, remember we did the interview yeah. there, and Scott's yeah. all about impact and change and, and doing the right thing for the community, and, and profit and return and IRR are important. Building, build, impact, impacting change, and anyway, yeah. One he's day very, we'll set it up. Forward thinking you guys would, uh, you have the same haircut too. <laughs> okay, so you're I doing respond to that, Mr. Cameron. <laughs> you're doing a conversion of the 38 Wal, uh, Walmer Church. I was wondering if your marking material would be very religious in nature. Uh, as we like to sort of say, it includes a free pass to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll help you uh, sell some units. So, 
All right. Uh, joking aside, we're actually really, really excited about that project. Um, anchoring what we do there is a conversion of the sanctuary into a community hub. While we see the role of the church from a denominational standpoint beginning to wean, one of the biggest concerns we have is the displacement of the community function that churches have played in communities. And so as we look to reposition and redevelop the, the Walmart church property, um, a key consideration for us is how do we actually sustain and continue the community role that the church had. And so sort of stay cool. tuned, some really exciting where, work. That, sorry, that where is there. the 38 Walmart church located? Uh, it's in the annex. Beautiful. All right, last question. And I already know the answer, but I'm kind of teeing one up for you here. Gym or ping pong table in the office? We've nailed the gym. We're missing the ping pong table. So <laughs> so tell us about the new office because it's pretty cool. It's sort of a place that you've created that you feel is a community and, and people want to be and, and therefore have been yeah, keen to come not, back it, to the it, office. It goes back to sort of my comment and sort of our, our team is number one for us. And, and for us, the, the ability to perform is about sort of the holistic person showing up. It, it's about mental health. It's about physical health. It's about sort of, you know, the, the, the sense of self being one of self-love. Um, and if you're not taking care of yourself, you can't take care of what you're doing. As part of our deep commitment, we sort of built out a full gym last year. We have a full, uh, full-time full health and wellness coach uh, on staff um, who works on putting together everything from individualized health and wellness programs, one-on-one -on -one training, group classes. We walk the talk, uh, and that's really, really important for us. So, um, it's, awesome. it's, so it's I, I saw of, I saw on LinkedIn that you're hiring. So uh, <laughs> so why don't why don't you give us why don't you give us ben the is uh, really key for this job? He's like, well, I'm trying to lose weight, <laughs> and I got a gym and a personal yeah. trainer, and I'm buying into this impact and yeah. change. Yeah. Well, so, so if someone wants to Sorry, find Baker. find your, your your company, you're on social media. Maybe give us a little bit of little, uh, yeah, where they can find you. For sure, you know we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. Our website uh, under our contact section has our team information, has all our of our job listings. I think we're hiring for 10 or so positions right now, everything from analysts to, to project coordinators, project directors. Uh, it, is an, it, is, it is the coolest team in the city. Um, it's just an amazing group of people. And, you know, if there's anything that I brag about, it is about the team that we have. Uh, from our executive leadership, who are sort of literally global leaders in the real estate space, right down to just a cool, cool group of folks who play hard, work hard together. Um, and the playing hard is everything from sort of serious sort of cyclists, mountain bikers, to to serious drinkers, so whatever your fancy, um, we've got it covered, and, and it's, it's 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 a passion play. And what I'd like to do is I'd amazing. like to go for a bike ride, and then have a couple drinks. Can we can we put that together? Done. 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 Awesome. Well, thanks again for for making the trip up here and uh, and uh, giving us all your your wisdom on the uh, on the market. Last word to you, Steve. Yeah, no, I said it already, and I, I feel like you uh, you know your vision is very clear, and and you are you are living out your future legacy and um, the clarity you have in terms of you know who you want to be and what you want to leave behind is is pretty uh, astonishing for someone your age and stage. Um, so thanks for sharing that with us and being on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It's really great. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.